This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome back to Romaniacs, the podcast that promises not to share your data with Cambridge Analytica. Like David Miliband, we're trying to put a brave face on being pipped to the post by Ed Miliband. We'd like to congratulate Ed and his reasons to be cheerful co-host Jeff Lloyd for winning the Broadcasting Press Guild's first award for Best Podcast last week. We were just happy to be nominated. However, we will be moving to New York at the end of the show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Dorian Linsky and with me this week are two of our regular presenters. Naomi Smith is a former Lib Dem parliamentary candidate and now Chief Operating Officer of Best for Britain, the campaign group that's fighting for a yes or, yes or no vote on the final deal. Hi, Naomi. How are you? I'm really good, thanks. Yeah. Um, um, I don't actually start until after Easter, uh, so I can't reveal too many trade secrets just yet. But, but, so. but after Easter, you yeah, know. yeah, oh, everything, yeah, Excellent. yeah. <laughs> it's a shame we weren't here last week when we did soft border patrol because you could have helped us with the accents. I mean, we didn't try. Why not? In your absence, <laughs> I don't. I, I don't try and don't try and lure me into showing why I didn't try. <laughs> just have to start with hi, Nyber and Kai. It's really easy. I can actually. I, my my origin. That is awful. Oh, I thought it was all. I thought it was. <laughs> no, okay, right, all right, all right, fine. Yeah. <laughs> also, it's there's Ian Dunt, editor of Politics.co.uk. Hi, Ian. Do you feel heartbroken by a trouncing by Ed? Yes. No. Uh, completely uh, emotionally shattered by that experience. We need another another vote. I presume. Second my friend. On the on the terms of the uh, exactly. award. Exactly. Yes, exactly. And we have a very special guest with us today, someone whose political career has run through all the events that led up to Brexit. Alastair Campbell was Tony Blair's fearsome communications director, widely thought to be the model for the thick of its Malcolm Tucker, although he has no comment to make at this time. He's now editor-at-large at The New European, where he writes a weekly column railing against what he calls the catastrophically stupid decision of Brexit. He's also a mental health campaigner and GQ's chief interviewer, where his subjects include politicians, athletes and indeed himself. He is the Romaniac's Romaniac and he's here with us today. Hi Alastair, how are you? I'm all right, I suppose, given all that's going on in the world. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of Brexit on your plate at the moment? Fair bit of Brexit, yeah. Brexit, I I, I dream about Brexit quite a lot. Um, Yeah, it's not good, is it? (laughs) I dreamt about Trump the other night as well, which is really horrible. Um, And also, did, did I hear you right that Ed didn't win? No, he did. He won... Well, he didn't win when it counted, but he did win. <laughs> no, 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 no. I thought you just said he's he's co-host. Jeff won it. No, oh he, no, it's two Ed and oh, his co-host. Oh, they both won. Yeah, they oh, both okay. won. Well, that's fair enough. Yeah. Well, you mentioned GQ. He's my latest victim in GQ. Oh, so there you go. There we go. There we go. So he's on the in on the streets in the shops now. Good cross-platform promotion there. Award-winning podcast. <laughs> and Ed Miliband is not as angry about Brexit as I believe he should be. Hmm. Well, it's because he's got his podcast now. He doesn't. Yeah, but I think, you know, I mean, I said to him, you could have been, like, you know, dealing with Putin and China and all these big things as prime minister and you're doing a podcast. It's not it's not quite the same, is it? But he is getting a he's definitely getting a lot out of it. Uh, And I think he does sort of think of it as a as he actually described as a sort of bit of a digital think tank. So, I mean, if he's getting ideas, you know, it's good. It's good. And he's it's uh, it's a hard thing to get over a really big defeat like that. 
Um, you know, so I think he's, he's 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 finding himself again. I'd say. Well, I always wanted to see a book called, which was just called Losers, in which it was a uh, series of interviews with people, you know, sports people. Well, I wrote one called Winners. <laughs> but there you go. Probably easier to, probably easier to get it the interviewers there. It was, yeah. Hi, Jose. Dear Mr. Mourinho, I'm writing a book about winners. Would you like to be able to think about that? Success yeah. has Losers. many parents, but failure is an orphan. Huh? Yeah. Can you talk about the worst night of your life for us, please? It's it's a, it's a tough it's a tough <laughs> ask. Yeah, but you know, there's a, there's definitely look. There are more losers in the world than winners in terms of campaigns, in terms of sports events, and. Uh, you know, how many people are going to win the Champions League this well, let's, year? Let's, let's do a podcast on it. We could have an entire podcast called Losers where we only interview people that, you know, well, what do you think this is? We lost. Very <laughs> 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 we lost. <laughs> we're going that. to be winners. <laughs> okay, cool. Good, yeah. <laughs> we'll talk to Alistair and Dad. By the way, Ian said second referendum. Never, ever say second referendum. No, we've discussed yeah. this. Well, but, yeah, on the other hand, I'm, I just, s- I'm not a campaigner. I'm a journalist. That's what, basically what it is, second no, it's referendum. Not. Well, yeah, what, what, was, what was back in the 70s? That was the first referendum. Yeah, it's slightly It's called a people's vote. Now, yes, exactly. Yeah, That's exactly what it is. That's <laughs> it. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Took just three minutes so far before you get on. <laughs> Stop ruining the people's vote. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk to Alistair more later. Plus, Theresa May's transition deal what's in it and how much do the Brexit ultras hate it on a scale of one to a billion? Cambridge Analytica, after the Observant Channel 4 exposed the shady clearinghouse of political data, they've been kicked off Facebook and arrest warrants have been sought. What does that say about Trump, Brexit, and the power of social media? And a new comic about Brexit called the Brexit. All this and more after these important messages from Naomi. A quick reminder, if you're listening on Friday or Saturday and you're in the north of England, then don't forget to go to the Great Northern March Against Brexit in Leeds on Saturday the 24th. Show your dissatisfaction with Article 50 on the anniversary of Theresa May triggering it. It starts at 11am on the Hedrow in front of the City Library and speakers include friends of the podcast, Lord Adonis, AC Grayling and Sue Wilson from Bromain in Spain. You can find out more at stopbrexitmarch.com. Meanwhile, we're happy to say we've passed 500 backers on Patreon for Romaniacs. Um, Backers get mugs, T-shirts and bags and, of course, advanced tickets for the next Romaniacs live, as well as exclusive recordings of our first show. Sign up and add our voice to the sound of the crowd. Find out more at Romaniacs.com or go to patreon.com slash Romaniacscast. Join in and own the Ramon. Thanks, Naomi. I'm actually going to the Leeds March. I'm getting out of... My metropolitan, well, this metropolitan bubble, and moving to, a, to, to another one, metropolitan yeah. bubble. Yeah, it's, it's a great metropolitan bubble. It's good because there's a few around the country that you get to choose <laughs> from. <laughs> now, it's a dirty job, but someone's got to do the Brexit news. The elephant's pregnancy that is the Brexit transition deal finally came to term on Monday when Theresa May struck an agreement with Brussels on what life will supposedly be like in the interim period after Brexit. On the upside, we'll be retaining the benefits of the single market and customs union for about two years, and EU citizens will be treated the same during the transition period as they are now. On the downside, the Irish border is still up in the air. Not literally up in the air, although that is one of the options on the table. (laughs) In case of no agreement, a backstop of regulatory alignment with the EU will be written into the transition deal. And Tory MPs were so furious at the abject betrayal of British fish that they threw them into the Thames from a trawler. (laughs) Sadly, it was a bit of a flop. Jacob Rees-Mogg, who warned against Britain becoming a joke nation, uh, was unable to board the boat because they had not uh, received permission for it to dock. But Nigel Farage was on there and threw some fish and went, then went home. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, so, Nigel. So it was, it's exactly these kind of like skillful theatrics that's, that's made in the politician years. Douglas Ross, the Moore AMP, said it would be easier to get someone to drink a pint of cold sick than to sell this as a success. Ian, you wrote they've just kicked the Brexit can further down Uncertainty Street. 
Did you? Did I write that? No, no, that's actually more added, elegantly put. Yeah, yeah. we've had, we've added uncertainty <laughs> street, but you can you can have that. Thanks. Um, so so is it a climb down? Not really. Um, I mean, uh, th- there was a chance that the EU at this point, um, even to get out of the sort of the transition discussion, was going to say, look, you need to affix Ireland by now. Um, and they didn't do that. I don't think there was a big chance of that happening. So it's not a particularly major victory for the government to have to have gotten past that stage. But all that really happens to us as we do this is that we just get closer and closer to the end point with that Irish problem right in the heart of the negotiation. The Irish problem cannot be fixed. There is no solution to that issue that exists in the world. It's not like taking a goods-only deal like we have, as we're going to be presented with in the third phase of negotiation now, where we have to say, well, look, okay, so we're just going to swallow it and we're going to take it. At least there, even though you make the compromise, you take the hit, you take the pain, there is a solution to be found. That is not the case with Ireland. There is no solution there. So this ball of unsolvable problem just gets kicked and kicked and kicked, and where it is now is it's going to explode right when we get to autumn, when things get rather climactic. Mog had an idea, though, to solve it. He did. Which was the island island leaves as well. Yes. (laughs) That probably won't work out overall. I think that one may not have been thought through. Um, Alistair, you were part of the team that negotiated the Good Friday Agreement, which which seems to be be treated in rather cavalier fashion Mm. these days. Does Does that sort of irresponsibility sort of make you make you despair? Uh, well, it adds yet another layer of uh, despair about the various levels of irresponsibility through the whole thing, one of which actually was the fact that it barely figured during the referendum debate. I went over to Ireland several times and I was saying to the Irish business community, you've got to get involved in this because, you know, this is going to affect you, you're going to be collateral damage, to use a horrible phrase. Uh, but the bo- I agree with Ian. By the way, I disagree with Ian that... that um, this wasn't. This didn't represent a whole series of climb downs. I think if you go back to how the negotiating strategy started out, whether it's on the cost, whether it's on some of the further concessions they have to give, you'd have to say the European unions have kind of got what they want. Oh, everything that they want. Yeah, uh, and, and where, where I do agree with within is that if I think in the time that we've had since the referendum, if there was a way of having the border uh, without. With, with, with us out and Ireland in uh, the European Union and having a border that had no kind of infrastructure and no people and no men with guns and no people filling in forms as they crossed it, we'd have thought of it by now. Somebody would have thought of this. And so I think that the... And do you know what I think has happened with the the European Union side of the things? I think you've got you've got very different dynamics going on. Basically, what they... I think at the start, they thought, oh, God, let's just, you know, see how it goes and see whether actually there's going to be a a big shift and the Brits might actually change their mind. And while that was going on, I think they were being very, you know, sort of bending over backwards in all sorts of ways. I think as negotiations have have gone on, somebody said said that, uh, somebody I was talking to in in, in one of the European capitals said that, you know, the, the problem you've got is you've got very, very serious issues being being dealt with by very non-serious people. Mm. And I think that's what they feel about us now. They don't really take this seriously. So they're, they're, they're sort of saying, well, we, you know, we'll, we'll sort... They think they will find a way to sort it out. They think we're gone. Now, I, I keep trying to persuade them, no, 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 it's, mm. it's, it's if, not when. This can still be, this can still be wrestled back. Uh, but I think they have slightly given up on us. And um, so I think that's what Barnier was reflecting, to be honest. I don't think it was, I think he was just saying, well, we'll work it out. He, he was kind of in a fairly insouciant 
mode uh, as he went through it. So I think I think we are, and this kind of you know, I think the fish thing is really interesting because if, if Barnier also said, by the way, that, and I, and I, I mean I don't have the figures in my head as to what proportion the fishing industry is to our national economy compared to the city and financial services but i know that financial services is a hell of a lot bigger mm-hmm. and barnier is basically saying we're not going to give you what you want on that either mm. and you're going to have to suck it up and yet it's the because of the kind of the, the symbolism of the, of the of the fish and because of the sort of pictorial power of boats going down past parliament or have you there's all the focus on that so I think that just adds to the the sense that we're just not being taken very seriously in these negotiations, I'm afraid. It all felt very sort of faulty towers, you know, uh, don't mention the war, I only mentioned it once and I think I got away with it. It was like, don't mention Ireland, whatever you do, you just won't mention Ireland. That, that, that seems to be what this sort of whole fallout from the transition mm. seems to have been. I mean, I'm not sure, Ian, that it'll come to a head in the autumn, I suppose, by the June summit, the EU will really... That, sorry, the EU will have really pushed for a decision uh, or a solution to Ireland. I don't know that it'll drag on through the summer, but it, it sort of can't really come quickly enough. And I mean, I'm sort of interested in the definition of the the backstop arrangement that was in the joint statement in December, because I don't fully understand whether Theresa May absolutely thinks that that backstop is just Northern Ireland maintaining regulatory alignment with the customs union and single market, or whether she means the whole of the UK. So I don't think it, it, from the EU's perspective, it doesn't really matter. What they're talking about is that border in Ireland. Yeah. What Britain chooses to then do is up to itself. The way that the EU have put it is goes, right. well, fine, if you don't all want to join in the customs union, then you're going to have to have that border in the Irish Sea. Exactly. There is, of course, this other alternative, which is just jump on in the boat. Yeah, and, and so so you're back to this DUP holding trees exactly. made by the short yeah. and curlies because they absolutely don't want that. Uh, Irish Sea border. So yeah, I mean, uh, when we started this podcast, we were sort of thinking, oh, will there be enough Brexit news for every every single week? And you know, <laughs> more fool us because mm. absolutely it was. Except on this issue, it's just we seem to be saying just the same stuff all the time because yeah. there has just been absolutely no progress. I think though, if there is, the, if, if if it does go down that that route, then you know, watch watch Scotland come back into the equation as well. I think or fish, is, yeah, yeah, because I think I, I think that if if you if if, and it is a very, very big if, and obviously she won't want to do it, but if that does turn out to be the only mm. way around this problem, then you're conceding the fact, you're conceding the idea that part of the UK should remain part of the arrangements that you're meant to be mm. leaving. Well, then what does that say about the United Kingdom? And, and, and given that the, the, the Scots have, you know, still, the, people keep going about opinion not shifting. Opinion, insofar as it is shifting in Scotland, is shifting even harder against the idea of the hard Brexit that Theresa May has is pursuing. So I think that comes back into place. You'll be able to talk about that as well. Mm, okay. <laughs> my, it's good to know. So my, my guess of, of how they came up with this arrangement and why they allowed it to take place is that they did put that backstop down in full in this agreement. Mm. They colour code the agreement green, yellow and white. Mm. White stands for stuff there's no agreement on. And of course, mm. <laughs> basically, the whole like of the, the Irish bit is white. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Way. Tellingly, the, the whole thing is a bit of a, a bit of a trolling, I think. Um, now, you get to that part. They don't just say, by the way, to reiterate, unless you guys come up with your trade solution, unless you come up with the tech solution, this is what the, the backstop will take place. They then go and write out the backstop and they write mm. it out in detail, saying, look, mm. you're going to be part of one regulatory body. This all comes in as one. Mm. Now, that is then presented by Barnier being up on stage going, nothing is agreed until, until everything, everything is, is agreed. agreed yeah. mm. So 
my hunch is it's clear the British government hasn't signed up to it yet, but it seems to me that the condition for talks to move past this second stage on transition onto the rest of it was that that was put down there in the text. Mm. And I think as things move, you're right, that the next couple of months have all the real meetings over Ireland. But I don't think that domestically the agreement will be there in, in British terms in order to sign up to any of the scenarios that right. are on offer. Right. So it keeps on rolling forward, rolling forward, rolling forward. But my hunch is that that thing just starts to sort of fossilize into something that is going to stay in that agreement and gets voted on. And that's when things get very, I think, you know, really quite intense indeed. So one thing we've talked about um, is the idea that kind of that Theresa May is basically being bossed around by the ultras. Do you, um, what do you make of, of how she's sort of handling the, these people? As um, somebody who's been in government yourself. Well, uh, she's very hard to read. And I don't know whether that's deliberate or not. I remember Nick Clegg once telling me that when when David Cameron sometimes used to send him along to do the bilaterals with Theresa May because he, he, he found a reason <laughs> not to do it. Uh, and, 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 and that she has this ability to not be read so that she, you might have a conversation with her and she says something and then you reply. And if she feels that she's already covered off the point in what she said before, she doesn't really kind of engage. Now, whether it's a shyness, people talk about her being quite shy, whether it's just a kind of a lack of ability to relate to people, I don't know. If it's a kind of strategy, then not being read in a difficult negotiation is sometimes maybe not a bad thing. I mean, you know, you mentioned the Good Friday Agreement. I mean, it was sometimes very, very hard to work out, more so with the nationalists than the unionists, it has to be said, because the unionists tended to sort of, you know, just never say what they thought, you know. But <laughs> well, no, you had shades of opinion, but you sort of, they were quite, yeah. usually fairly easy to read, whereas the nationalists sometimes are quite difficult to read. But I, th I think how... She, I think she made a terrible mistake on day one. And, of course, when you start in something like that job, the, the first impressions are so important. She made very good impressions in terms of what she said on the steps of number 10. You know, the just about managing, remember them, going to focus on mental health, and that's gone pretty much nowhere, all these different things that she said. But the one thing she did on, on, on the referendum was she essentially did just set herself up there as the spokeswoman for the 52%. And I think that has guided her position ever since. Now, I had a conversation with a Tory MP a couple of weeks ago now who said something that has really made a lot fall into place for me in terms of watching Theresa May. He said, you have to understand one thing about Theresa May. She is absolutely determined that the Conservative Party will not fall apart over this. Now, once you get that in your head, as I now have, it sort of makes sense that all she, what she's really driving her is holding the Conservative Party together. Which is what drove Cameron to have the referendum in the first place. Yeah, but that's what ultimately is... It's the downfall of many a Tory well, leader. the downfall of him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he's gone. But I, so I, th I think that, that, you know, she's been, she's been driven by that. So when she makes that speech, Manchin House speech, when she responds as she did to, to, the, to this later round of negotiation, there, you can sort of see it the whole time, you know, She's saying this to keep them happy and this to keep them happy. Mm. And then as they sort of flake off, she's analysing how hard it's going to be to get them back on board. And thus far, from a pu that, purely mm. from that perspective, mm. you'd have to say she's done not bad. Uh, the mm. tragedy is it's just terrible for the country, yeah. which is meant to be her job. Yeah. Yeah. It's still the yeah. nicest yeah. thing anyone's ever said about Theresa May on this podcast. Is it? <laughs> well, I hate, I, may, I really don't want that. <laughs> 
Is it? No, but I suppose. Oh, I don't know. Matthew Paris I'm, probably said something. I'm trying to give it. I'm trying. The thing is that she's succeeding in the job of leading the Conservative Party, but failing in the job of Prime Minister. She's totally okay. failing the job of Prime Minister because the job of leadership, ultimately, I think, is to is to face a country, the country that you lead up to the challenges that you really face and then to have a strategy for them. <laughs> in her heart, I think she thinks this is a disaster. Now, I don't know that because she's very hard to read on that as well. But it's interesting that whenever she, she and Hammond, whenever they've been asked about whether they think this is, you know, going to damage us, I thought it was interesting, the Mansion House speech, she, for the first time, admitted this is going to mm. probably make us poorer. Uh, you know, you, you've, when you're the Prime Minister and you're doing that knowingly, ah, that's got to weigh quite heavily on you. So I just think purely from that party management point of view, they have not imploded. I think this idea that Labour's sort of sitting around thinking, oh, we're going to have an election anytime soon, I just don't think that's going to happen. Uh, I think even if she lost the vote, and I hope she does lose the vote on the deal, but I think even the politics might drive you beyond where they want to be, but it's not, in, it's not automatic. And she does seem, you know, sorry to say something else moderately positive about her from my perspective, but... He's on a roll. No, she's, she, she does seem to have a bit of resilience going for her, hmm. uh, which yeah. you need. You think even if Parliament voted against the motion that the Conservatives could survive, the motion on the, the whole of the withdrawal treaty at the end of the whole process? I think the politics make it very, very, very difficult. Uh, but, I mean, look, if you j just think back to the election, you know, she was a goner. Hmm. Uh, George Osborne, what was it, Dead Woman Walking? Mm. Um, and she sort of kept going. And so I, I think that the one thing the Tories... I mean, these Tories... I remember once um, Alan Clark, my fellow diarist, and he and I were quite good mates from my journalism days because he was a very, very gossipy source. <laughs> i put it that way. <laughs> um, but I remember he once phoned me up when we were in number two, by the time we got into number 10, he once phoned me up. I can't remember what year it was. But he said, um, we were having a chat about this, that and the other. And he said, he said you're going to walk the next election. I said, what do you mean? They said, I think it was between the first and second elections. He said, well, he says, the trouble, the thing you've got to understand is we now hate each other much more than we hate you. Mm. Um, now, I think they're sort of getting to that, but the Corbyn thing holds them together. Yeah. They really do have a kind of uh, a dislike and a, and a fear about the politics involved in that that I think is, is so... I don't know. Mm. I don't know is the answer, but I don't think it's a done deal that should she lose a vote, she's a goner it's straight away. Well, it's, it's more like the Irish question will force the DUP to make the decision for yeah. her. I mean, yeah. she, she may hold the party together, but not the country. Okay. Next up, the Information Commissioner is seeking a warrant to raid the office of data crunching company Cambridge Analytica after expose by The Observer and Channel 4. The Observer reported that Cambridge Analytica had gained unauthorised access to tens of millions of Facebook profiles and Channel 4 recorded the company's chief executive, Alexander Nix, discussing using women as honey traps to compromise politicians. Nix later claimed it was a media vendetta based on his company's backing of Donald Trump. The company was, of course, founded by Steve Bannon and uh, the Megabucks Mercer family. Cambridge Analytica has been kicked off Facebook, ensuring that now the horse has escaped, the door is firmly bolted. Um, do, have any of us used Cambridge Analytica's uh, infamous personality quiz? Please click A for yes or B for no. <laughs> <laughs> do we know? The, which quiz it was? How do we know? You'd know if you took the quiz. You wouldn't know if you're the friend of someone who had taken the quiz mm, who had their mm, data mm, then sort of harvested yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think... I. I didn't do that. I would never do If it that. would have been a quiz about, I don't know, how many of these records from the 90s do you remember? Who's your favourite ex-man? Possibly. <laughs> yeah. oh, they'd have got... 
It would have been a data bonanza for them. <laughs> from, the, from the when? The 90s? I was no. just saying, like, because you, you know you see these silly quizzes and it'll be like, how many records do you remember from the 90s? And I'll be like, oh, okay then. It turns out to be really easy. And I was like, what's the point of that quiz? And now, of course, we know what the point of a lot of these... So mm. Donald Trump elected. He's got was the Donald that. Trump elected. So you but did I did, did like recognise a lyric from Farmer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, is this... I mean, Facebook's uh, share price is plunging. Um, and Mark Zuckerberg has been um, has been called to speak to... Um, which committee would that be? DCMS, DCMS yeah. Yeah. Um, quaking in his boots. Is, is anyone... <laughs> <laughs> it's a strongly worded letter. <laughs> I would love to I'd love to see Zuckerberg there. Would he wear a shirt or keep to those stupid T-shirts he wears? You know? <laughs> Do you think he'd actually put a tie on? I think he might. I've never seen him in a tie. I think he might think now is not the time to be just like Silicon Valley <laughs> tech bro. Kind yeah. of like, what's up, guys? I, susp- I, I don't know. I, I, I think that... Um, I'll tell you the first thing I want to say about this Cambridge Analytica thing is Carol Cadwallader at The Observer. She's fought a pretty lonely plough on this mm. for quite a while. A couple and, of years, yeah. And, you know, I think with most of the rest of the media going, ooh, move on, you know, forget it, get on, what's she on about? And it's interesting how it's, it's, this, it's this that has taken it to a kind of sort of tipping point mm. that people mm. feel they, mm. they really have to take it seriously. Mm. There wasn't, you know, the, the kind of thing she's been saying, she's been saying the whole way through and, and providing the stories. And it's just been one of those stories that we've all kind of looked away from. So hats off to her. I think she's a, she's what I'd call a proper journalist in a, in, a, in a world where there are too many just sort of you know filling space and doing what their bosses tell them. Um, but and I think as to where it goes now, uh, you know, and here's where you have to step back from your own desires. Uh, I did uh, on Instagram this morning. I did put out a picture of the the now deleted tweet from uh, Andy Wigmore about boasting that yeah. Cambridge Analytica were involved in the Brexit campaign yeah. and. Ditto and Aaron Banks's, Aaron and, Banks's yeah. to Hugo Rifkin and, and all that. So hopefully somebody will come knocking at their, their door at some point. Mm. But I think it's, um, I, I think what it does say, I mean, what I don't buy is the idea that all these people who voted Trump voted Trump because somebody, you know, worked out what music they listened to mm. in, the, in the 1990s. And I suspect that with these Cambridge Analytica, uh, and particularly when you see the guy, you know, the, the undercover filming of that guy, Nick's, uh, is his name Nick or is Alexander Nick? Alexander. Yeah. Yeah. And when you saw that, you, you think, I mean, there's so much sort of, you know, in a bullshit industry, they seem to me to have a lot of bullshit attached to what they do. Mm-hmm. And yet the fact of them setting out from a very right wing agenda to right wing eyes the, 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 the debate and the, the electorate, they, they do seem to have had some success in that. So I, I, I kind of, I also feel, you know, I do a lot of, out in the speaking circuit, I do a lot about reputation management and I always throw out names of people that are kind of globally known. And it's really interesting who people think has a good and bad reputation. And I've noticed Zuckerberg's, even before this, kind of on the decline mm. for quite mm. some time. Uh, whereas, whereas a Bill Gates has kind of gone in the in the opposite direction, mm. and I think it's because even in the modern age, even in this, and perhaps especially because we've now got Trump in the White House, mm. people <clears throat> want to feel there is kind of purpose and values to what they do, and they don't see purpose and values in Facebook beyond Facebook in it for themselves. Well, I think there's a lot of kind of argument about actually how. You said effective, is it? I mean, some people are sort of going, well, you know, this was to blame for the referendum result, which seems an extreme claim. But on the other hand, I mean, I don't follow, most of my Facebook friends are are, are not very right wing. But I have seen 
the left wing equivalent working. I have seen a, a few friends kind of circulating very dubious news mm. stories from that kind of ecosystem of oh, for sure of left wing sites. You've got to assume the same things happening on the right. And I've tried to to argue with them and go, this seems a bit like an anti Semitic conspiracy theory. Maybe you haven't noticed that, but this mm. is what Rothschilds tends to mean, and they refuse to believe it. Yeah. And so it's just sort of anecdotally, it's like this stuff. If you are creating a kind of like a little sort of you know, propaganda bubble and social media, yeah. it, it does seem to have an effect. Now, whether you can say, you know, well, that challenges the validity of Trump's win or Leave's win, I think he's going too far. But the idea mm. that it doesn't influence people at all. Mm. It's not impossible, but, by the way, that it would have something to do with, it, especially the Trump win. Trump win is comparatively few mm. sort of voters. You're about tens of thousands, about 70,000, yeah, yeah. you know, in a few states or something. So yeah. in that kind of scenario, remember, they're not, there is the whole thing of the values bit of, they buy this kind of biscuit. Mm-hmm. They go on that kind of holiday. So yeah. they're this kind of mm-hmm. vote. Okay, so that's one thing. But that's not quite what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is the people did the test. Then they harvest the data mm-hmm. of millions of other people. Now on that, I mean, remember, this can also be the data that someone transmits through Facebook Messenger. Mm-hmm. So you could say, for instance, if they have used, because of course it's all part of Facebook, it's your Facebook data. If you've used these set words, let's say someone in Britain yeah. uses some kind of oh, racial boom. slur. I was going to say, listeners, Dorian slur. just looked really right. scared. <laughs> yeah, no, I've noticed, uh, look, all the colour has gone from Dorian. For some text. reason, I thought Facebook Messenger was as safe as a kind of like deep web coded channel. Oh, yeah. I, I can assure you that it is not. And if someone uses, let's say, a racial slur of some kind, then you might target them with made-up <clears throat> stories, essentially adverts that mm. look like articles. Mm. Exactly. And you can target that towards a comparatively very small number of people mm. to get some quite significant political results. Mm. So this stuff, it, I agree that when people start, there is a sort of emotional instinct to go, maybe Brexit's all just about because mm. someone lied on Facebook. Mm. And we need to deal with the realities of why Brexit happened. Mm. Of course we do. However... We're at an early stage now with a kind of technology and a kind of lack of morality around consent for how that technology is used online around politics where we can stop this now Mm. if we come down hard on it now. And this Mm. would be a very good time to do so. And I think I've heard Tim Berners-Lee speak really well about this, where he talks about, you know, we made a choice about content, whether to pay for it or whether to pay for it with our data. And my God, are we paying for it now? (laughs) Having sort of made that made that decision. What's that line? If if it's free, then the product that's being sold is you. Exactly. Exactly. that. Mm. Yeah. And just just ever so quickly to link it all back to Brexit. I think what we what we do know is that um, aggregate IQ which is an organisation very closely linked to Cambridge Analytica. They had sort of data sharing licences with one another, uh, received a massive donation from Theresa May's coalition partners in the DUP of the order of magnitude of, you know, sort of 30,000 plus, plus pounds, um, as as did lots of other organisations around uh, uh, Leave.eu and, and even Vote Leave. And they all claimed at the time that they were working together. So Aaron Banks did and Cambridge Analytica did and, and other groups did. And they are now all saying, no, 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 no. We were lying when we said that mm, so yeah. which is it they were either mm. lying then or they're lying now he, he and that times. does mean that this 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 referendum was built on lies and we have got a right to know and even if it only made a very marginal difference actually the result was pretty marginal so uh, we have rules and regulations for a reason because we, right. you know because those expenses the result limits, is what it is it, but we should know absolutely what would it be useful any? if they could tell us the truth good i mean he, yeah. he does keep on saying i mean alexander <laughs> hicks has said he said at the beginning he said in 2016 yeah. he said in 2017 that they had links with leave.eu 
they now say that was not the case when he was in front of a Commons committee the other day. He was saying that they they never harvested Facebook data, which they na- we now know they absolutely did. I so think it's about time got M- to the Mr. Nix is going to re- need to rely on all of his old Etonian <laughs> <laughs> charm and survivability. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think he's in uh, big trouble. Well, if you have any thoughts about this, uh, leave a comment on our Facebook page. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, very quickly, uh, in Brighton News, there's a Brexit comic coming out. Sadly for Ian, it's not a Marvel-style superhero book featuring the uncanny Brexmen or the European Court of Justice League. (laughs) That was our producer, Andrew. Um, But a proper British comic in the style of Trumpton, featuring characters like Dealing Davis, British champion lightweight negotiator and Captain Brexit. Uh, Illustrator and author Mike Dix raised nearly £5,000 by crowdfunding for the first edition, which is going out next week. He used to run the Trumpton UKIP Twitter, which UKIP MEP David Coburn (laughs) tried to shut down under copyright (laughs) laws. (laughs) Um, So what do we think? Do we we see the... Yeah, we like like humour. We like humour. I actually think that... I I, I did an event recently with Rory Bremner. Uh, We were in Cheltenham with this kind of very middle-aged, middle-class audience. And Roy Bremer is so funny and he's such a great mimic and satirist. And I thought, why isn't he on telly every night? Mm. Where is Spitting Image? Mm. I think we have so little satire yep. at the moment compared to the States. So I think a comic is a, is a welcome addition, particularly as so many of the characters in... Uh, I mean, you know, what other country but Britain could produce Jacob Rees-Mogg as a... Quote serious person in our political Absolutely. landscape. It's incredible. Well, he is literally. I mean, because people are laughing at us. I mean, he is so literally a Beano character. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he is. Oh, he has, hasn't he? he? Is yeah, like, what was he called? Wasn't Lord he, wasn't he Lord Snooty? Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, there's a there's a really nice uh, bit of the comic where they um, talk about nasty Nigel having been given a job presenting at the BBC and presenting Question Time, which I really like that they're having a good old pop at the BBC. Serious point to make though. Um, Research and focus groups suggest that actually humour bombs quite badly with undecideds and soft levers and and remainers that we're trying to win over. It's very, very good for the soul of the ardent remainer. So in in that, I think it's serving us really, really well. But I think we have to make sure that we're not looking like we're poking fun at people who are lied to. It's fine to poke fun at the liars, but there's quite a fine line between that and and sort of making people Mm. that we need to win over to our side feel that we're not mocking them. I think once you start putting comedy through focus groups, you're in trouble. I think comedy's just got to be comedy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but I think what, what like, I mean is it shouldn't be a channel for us. Yeah. But it is largely cathartic, yes, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Like, yeah, yeah, but yeah. Ben Elton did not bring down Margaret Thatcher. You know, but, I don't think many people were kind of watching. But we have to what, have some fun along yeah. the way. Yeah, but I'll tell you what, I think, I think, I think Spitting Image... Brought down John Major. No, I think it did for David Steele. Oh, yes, that's right, oh, in the pocket. David, because in the pocket David was in the pocket yeah, of David yeah. Owen, and it's sort of... Ian, yeah, no, you're too Jack, young you to remember any of You mentioned um, no, no, that's, that's, Malcolm you're, you're Tucker. You're on. <laughs> I remember Jack Straw came to see me when the thick of it thing was all starting, and he says, this is really dangerous. I said, what do you mean? He says, they're basically, they, they've not been able to get us on policy. They've not been able to get Tony, so that this is how they're going to try and get him. As sort of, you know, he's not really his own man. Now, I don't think that's true, hmm. because Tony was... You know his own man and did could lead and and what have you. But I do th- I I've thought a lot about the spitting image thing. I think less so John Major. I think because that you know he he actually survived quite long. Yeah. yeah, it was almost endearing the whole peas thing yeah, and what yeah, have you. But pants. but I think the I think I think David Steele never quite recovered from that. You were quite you, so you were quite worried about the thick of it when it came out. I wasn't, but Jack definitely came to see me and he said this whole thing about a combination of that and Brem when Bremner and Burden fortune. Do you remember mm. yeah. Rory Bremner was Tony and they had that mm. big 
fat guy doing me. He didn't look like me at all. He wasn't even an athlete. He was much better looking. But he was like, he genuinely thought it was worrying. And there was a part of me that was worried about it. I love it now. I love the thick of it now. But there was a little bit of me that was a bit worried about it at the time. Yeah. Well, you've been hearing from him all along, our special guest, Alistair Campbell, one of the most feared men in all spin doctoring, now in his new nice incarnation as a champion of Remain. <laughs> well, I mean, he's only here. I mean, you know, I'd love to go and do Brexit Central. <laughs> but you mentioned you mentioned uh, the thick of it there, which is probably, you know, by sort of implication, kind of enhanced this sort of reputation you had. Do you... Do you sort of look at that reputation and think, well, I, you know, I wasn't that bad. Like, this is a kind of, it's a tough job. Yeah, but I, I don't think, I mean, <laughs> I don't think Malcolm Tucker's that bad in that. Jesus in, Christ. Well, what, I mean, no, what I mean by that is, is that it's a caricature of somebody who's trying to keep control. And the only person who swears more than Ian Dunn. <laughs> I, I, I do swear a lot, but I don't okay. swear like Malcolm Tucker. Well, he and I once had a swear off, you know, in real life. A uh, charity thing. We had a swear off, and, and um, it was uh, uh, one of the city traders that gives all their money to nine eleven families. Um, and I was doing it for one of the mental health charities, and he was doing it for Bernardo's. But it got stopped halfway through after my. I did. Are we allowed to swear on this program? Yes. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> what, I, I did this thing. Watch which, out, family listeners. Which ended with me. So I was telling a story of my uncle. Uh, who was a farmer, and I said, and he was this back this milk, milking machine that didn't work, and I said, and he turned, and he says, he says, this thing is fucking fucked, and I'm fucking fucked to fucking fuckery with it, right? <laughs> and we were getting points for Fs and Cs. Yeah. Well, I don't think we did C words, but anyway. So these guys in the city traders floor, they all sort of thought I'd done quite well. Before Peter Capaldi could even get going, some guy came charging in to stop the whole thing because the entire thing was being beamed right around the building including into the staff crash. <laughs> so it was a great Malcolm Tucker moment um, but no I think it's um, I don't quite understand this reputation thing at all I don't really I think I'm look I, I did a very difficult job with the media at a very difficult time when they were changing into something that they were not when I was mm. back in the day when mm. I was a journalist. Mm. And I think we did it well most of the time. And I, I think actually a lot of the, the image thing comes from people who actually have never had anything to do with me. You talk to middle management at BBC, who I've never met, and they'll sit around in their dinner party saying, oh, God, he was never off the phone, he was this, that, the other. And, but actually you talk to the people that I did deal with and I don't think really there's that much to it. I think that, you know, we, we, I, was, I was tough and I defended the government and Tony, and I still do defend Tony. Um, but I think it's, I don't know. I remember Andrew Ronsley, the Observer guy, he once said to me, he says, the problem you've got, he said, is that we, the press, find you, me, more interesting than we find a lot of the politicians. Uh, added to which I was the person they saw all the time. So it was in their interest to kind of build me up into this kind of slightly weird mythical figure. Would you? I mean, the the, the famous thing is always a thing of when you become the story. There's a problem, and you became the story pretty early on. So you sort of disprove it in a way because there was at least years to go after you became the story. When well, everything so kept I was on really, I'll tell you one thing that really surprised me when I first took the job in 1994. Maybe this is naive, but I remember it was Robert Shrimsley wrote this big profile in the Telegraph. Is this the man who can? Is this the man who can deliver victory for Labour or something? I thought, what's it all about? It was like, it was called, these people that I'd worked with for years, suddenly they're all writing these profiles. And I'm like, oh. 
So you're right. I did become the the story a lot, and I think the the interesting thing about about Tony as a leader, I remember once him actually saying to me, that, right during one of the many kind of heavy periods when I was getting a lot of flack, and Tony understood that we were lightning. You know, me, Peter Mandelson, uh, Derry Irvin at times, Charlie Fortner at times. We were lightning conductors. We were the ones that would take it, and and that was fine. I understood that was part of my job. But Tony would sometimes say, "Are you okay with this?" You sh- you, and he and he so he he would always be the one almost articulating to me why they were doing it, and the reason he would say is, "Look, they know that you're important to me. Uh, they they find it hard. They find it hard to take me out. Therefore, they're going to try and take away the legs." Mm. Uh, and you know, once you've got once your boss, as long as your boss is in that mindset, mm. the rest of it doesn't really matter. And I definitely reached a point around about the fuel protest. I reached a point, honestly, of just I just didn't care anymore what they said. I just didn't care, and that's honestly that's liberating once you got that. So, as somebody observing the Remain campaign as it mm. unfolded, as somebody that knew about campaigns and about messaging, I mean, in hindsight, uh, everybody, including the people who worked at Stronger In, will go, "Well, we did this, this, this wrong. Mm-hmm. We were unlucky there, etc., mm-hmm. etc." Mm-hmm. What did you think at? At the time, were, were the were the kind of the failings that people talk about now? Did you, to your eyes, were they obvious at the time? Like, oh my God, you need to be doing this and not that. Um, well, listen, I was, I was, I wasn't sort of integral to the campaign. I was involved in the campaign. I was dipping in and out of the campaign. I was, and I was campaigning on my own way in different places. Of course, yeah. um, I think that you know, I'm a great believer in, the, in in big campaigns. You have to have big strategy, and of course, the entire thing was driven by Cameron. Cameron responding tactically to a particular problem. So that's the thing that, from that moment, I kind of worried. Definitely towards the end. I mean, I can remember, um, what's the name on the Strong Green campaign? Lucy. Oh, yeah. Rogers. Uh, Lucy Rogers? Pass. Can't yeah. remember. So anyway, I remember a few weeks out saying to her, listen, this is lost. Mm. And she was like, why? Because, I said, because... I'm just keep running into people who I'm really, really surprised when they tell me they're going to vote leave. Mm. And so, and particularly because I go to most Burnley games, it was like, now I know, you know, Burnley voted very, very leave, but it wasn't just the people that I might have expected to say they were voting leave. I was meeting so many people who I didn't expect. Um, people I thought I knew and who I thought shared my kind of outlook and politics and what have you. So... There were time and and because and I did I did have an in to people in number ten and I did have an in to Osborne and I was I was kind of feeding in messages. I did worry that the Project Fear thing was not good enough. Um, I think that and and it's hard it's hard to fight for a status quo yeah. in the modern age against an insurgent. It's hard to fight just for the status quo. That's why in this campaign now we have got to be the the status quo. Is Brexit? Yeah, we have got to <laughs> yep. fight what they are trying to pretend is this sort of you know this great future that we've got based on the fact that this Brexit cannot be touched. But yeah, there was lots going on that. But but you know, I'll be honest. Until the last few weeks, I thought it'd be fine. I did. Mm. How I long think, had you get that channel with George Osborne that had been functioning throughout the campaign? Yeah, up to a point. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you were sort of just contributing sort of campaign suggestions, slogan suggestions, thoughts, counter-arguments. Thoughts, yeah. And then uh, Craig Oliver asked me to go in and um, help out on some of the debate preparation and that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, I, t- I talked to Craig quite a lot. I, talked, I, I mean, I was worried about the campaign from the perspective of it felt very one-dimensional. But I understand it. I've got to say, it's the same with Hillary Clinton. I, 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 I actually think... 
hindsight is a wonderful thing, but if you were to say, wind back, what campaign would you advise Hillary Clinton to fight? That's the campaign. But she was up against this opponent that we hadn't really worked out and nobody could understand. And it's the same with Brexit. Mm. I think that, that, you know, so, for example, looking back, Barack Obama basically says vote Remain. Barack Obama's very, very popular in Britain. America's an incredibly powerful country. You're going to bank that and think yeah. that's going to work for yeah. you. Yeah. I, I think looking back, it probably worked against. Yeah. So I wouldn't say I wouldn't have said that now at the time. I thought, good, excellent. All those business people coming out and saying what they did. At the time, I thought, good. Mm. Looking back, no. doesn't look quite so wise. You've advised people like uh, Macron and, and, and things like that. And earlier on, you, you reflected on um, the 90s when the Tories sort of hated themselves mm. uh, and their different factions more than, than Labour. And, and why one might say the same is true now of, of the current Labour Party. Mm. Um, and you and I have an old friend in common. I'm very much a Charles Kennedy liberal. And, and after he died, you, you'd remarked that he'd said to you about, uh, not, you know, not really jokingly saying setting up a, a, a left-wing Scottish party. Um, so in the vein of all of that, you know, how, how likely do you think it is that some kind of new thing can emerge here in the UK and some kind of pro-European guys? I don't know. And I, I, don't, I don't think it should just be seen. If that were to happen, it shouldn't just be about Europe. Because I think that would be... You know, one of the reasons, the Lib, you know, one of the big surprises of the last election to me is that the Lib Dems did so badly. Mm. Um, now, there's all sorts of reasons, but if you think about it, what was their one defining point? It was that they were very, they were very, very pro-Europe mm. and they were basically saying there's got to be another referendum. So now other parties partially may have caught up with them and certainly, you know, other people have caught up with that in terms of mm. thinking we should have a look at the final deal. But I do think that um, the politics as it is at the moment, I think it's unsustainable. I think it's unsustainable in our democracy to have millions of people, millions of people feeling at the moment that mm. nobody's speaking for them. Mm. But we've got a very different setup in terms of our electoral system. Yeah, for and, sure. And how would we and avoid... Also, and also we had a referendum on changing the voting system, don't yep, forget. Yep. And people said no because yep. they couldn't be asked. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's not straightforward. This people, if I had a pound for every single person who just walking around, it's happened three times already today, people just walking around saying things like, why doesn't David Miliband come back? Or why don't you just start up a new party? Or, you know, why can't you just get rid of Corbyn? Whatever it might be, right? Yeah. And it's, it's all very well to say that. <laughs> but then you've got to, you know, what I, I, my worry at the moment about a new party and... You know, just remember with the SDP, uh, say what you like about them, but the four people who led its creation, they were big, big figures. Yep. Mm -hmm. Now, who is there in the PLP comparable at the moment to Owen Jenkins, Shirley Williams, Shirley Williams yeah. and Bill Rogers, mm -hmm. right? So, and is there not a danger? This is what a lot of mm -hmm. Labour people will be thinking. Is there not a danger, regardless of what people think of Corbyn, and I do think Corbyn on Brexit has been an absolute disgrace, and, and I'm getting a bit irritated with Keir as well. I just don't think he's pushing the boat hard enough. Is there not a danger that all that, that does in the end is actually help slash guarantee the re-election of one of the worst governments yeah. we've ever had? But so I so we're, we're so <clears throat> not spoiled for choice... But I, I do think this. This is. I think our politics as it is is unsustainable. Something has to give. I just don't know what and when. Because one thing that you keep hearing a lot, because in such febrile times, is that sort of centrism in that kind of nineties 
onwards incarnation um you know is is sort of dead and now one has to move to sort of to the left or to the right um yeah, people are only saying that because that's what's happening well the, what, is, i mean the, yeah. the, the center wasn't on the ballot paper last election well this is the uh, thing where people Ma- macron off, yeah. you mentioned macron mm. Ma- macron managed brilliantly in my view to take the se- I mean, actually when you look at his his cv and his track record he's hardly kind of you know yeah. he's hardly the anti-elitist no. But he managed to make himself the the outsider, coming in from outside politics, as it were, but actually saying the two things that I think do define what I would define as sensible centrist policy, which is basically the you know you've got to you've got to be dedicated to try and g- generate wealth, but you've got to make sure that you. That, that it's spread fairly. But we've really got to come across as people with passion and new ideas and, and relevance and not be some kind of uh, you know, coalition of stale failures, which I think there is a sort of well, a slight I, yeah, danger of a, I, a lot I, of the centrist voices that we yeah, still I hear. Yeah, I agree. But, that's been, but, but yeah, I agree with that. And, it's, and they and are it, men, mostly. Uh, there's some women, but no, you're right. You're right. And, and, I, and I think that, um, you know, it's like you, you're at Best for Britain. Yep. Okay. Uh, now, I think that Best for Britain do lots of good stuff but I think you've got to be really really careful about this idea that you know politicians are bad and that politicians are one of the reasons why we lost the referendum because let's be frank who do the public identify with it'd be great if there were these new voices coming through it'd be fantastic if the loads of I've been trying the our future our choice and, Femi and these guys they're great, they're great. and I, I've regularly been saying to the media when they mm, phone me up mm. right I'm not, I can't do it uh but have them on. But yeah. I can't when yeah. I can. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, I'll give you a phone number for these guys because we need to get these y- the younger voices out. But in Parliament, I mean, I was saying to somebody earlier, my parents, you know, when I was growing up, I reckon my parents, they weren't that political, but I reckon they could have named 50 to 60 MPs, recognised them off the telly. I mean, today, you know, we're talking about a very, very small pool. And I think that one of the problem one of the in a way we're a little bit victims of our success in in terms of how dominant new labor was in the political landscape when we were in power because we still you know whether it's blair mandelson brown me the people who are involved in that whole new labor thing there's still an interest in that in terms of getting us onto the media and talking about this. But that just feeds into this idea that we're figures of the past when actually what we need are voices of the future. Well, you'll be well aware of this, that every time um, Tony Blair um, pops up and says something about Europe, which invariably uh, I agree with, um, there's this, you know, people, someone just shouts Iraq mm. and then sort of don't, don't listen to him. Do you feel like that's just... That is, that, is his, that is his fate now, that whatever he says, and not just him, but... You know, well, uh, his, 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 his former yeah, colleagues that, are just sort of it, what they say is just going to be tainted. That's his that's his fate for a certain section. I think a lot of this is about the media. I had breakfast this morning with um, Mete Coban, who runs My Life, My Say. Mm. Uh, and, and he was making the point that, you know, for he's 25. Right. Now, he's very, very political. And he, he was telling me, he met Tony at some dude the other day, and he said he put a picture of himself and Tony on, on Twitter. And he said the response mm. from his generation mm. was just, wow, you know, he's such a big name and he's such mm. a big figure. So I think we've got to be, I think you talk about the bubble. Now, I'm not saying Iraq isn't a very, very big issue for a lot of people. But I, and the thing I always say to Tony is you've, if you believe something, same as John Major with it, I thought his speech recently was brilliant. Mm. If you believe something and you do have the ability to get your voice out there, you've got to use it. So don't be put off. And, and, I, and, you know, I'll tell you, going around the place, 
Yes, it's true. You bump into people who go, oh, Tony Blair, I believed in him so much, and now I hate him. I do meet people like that. I meet an awful lot of people who say to me, God, I'll tell you what, the country was a lot better off when you guys were in charge. And, you know, that's... I mean, I, so I never thought I'd find myself saying, bring back Osborne, all is forgiven. But, you know, there have been moments where I've thought... Oh. Well, I, I had a, had, um, a, a little minor dust-up on Twitter with someone where, again, Iraq was the kind of... Can I just uh, say, by the way, all dust-ups on Twitter are minor. Yeah, OK, fair, good. <laughs> so you had Category a... error there. Yeah, I just had a, yeah, a standard dust up on Twitter um, with someone again where, where sort of Iraq was the argument ender as far as they saw it. Um, and if we're talking about kind of trust in, in sort of politicians and, and indeed in the media um, and this sense that, uh, you know, that, that, they, that they lie to, you know, to get, to get what they want. Do you feel that the, that the sort of the, the legacy of Iraq there and arguments about dossiers and so on you know, still cast a shadow over people's sort of faith in... It does if people want it to. It does if people want it to. I mean, I think that the most institutions, and I don't think you can just put this down to social media, I, I do think the nature of our media and the way it's changed is, is, is a, a big factor in this. And I'm not saying it's not, it's not a reasonable thing to say, right, there's Tony Blair... Uh, he took the country into uh, a conflict that millions of people were opposed to. British soldiers died. It had, you know, the, the consequences uh, were complicated and not not and very messy. Added to which, one of the reasons for doing it turned out not to be true. Uh, I understand the anger for that. Um, what I won't do, and never will do, because I was there and I know the thinking behind the whole process, what I will never do is accept the conspiracy theories or accept that we lied. What we did was was base a decision in part, and it, this is the other thing that happens because it became so controversial. It's like, well, you know, we only went to war because of that. We went to, you know, we, we took out Saddam for all sorts of reasons, one of which was his history, one of which was the breach of UN SCRs mm. down the years and so forth. So, yes, it casts a shadow. But I tell you, when we talk about learning the lessons of Iraq, one of the things I really, really worry about, not least looking at Syria and looking at what's happening with Russia at the moment, is one of the lessons that our politicians have learned is don't do really, really difficult things. And that's, you know, I, I, and, and, and let's, let me, you know, bring it back to, to Brexit. I think, I'm not saying this is in her thinking, and, uh, but, but I, I, when, when I was about not doing difficult things, I actually think if Theresa May at the moment were on her own with her conscience and was, ask, uh, was asking herself, as a leader, doing the right thing for the country, what do I do now? She'd do the difficult thing. She'd say, do you know what? I've looked at this every which way. There's no way we're going to do this without damaging the country. So I'm not going to do it. Mm. Now, bloody difficult, really mm. difficult, going against the will of the people and all that. But that, that is – and I, I, so I think what's happened in our politics more generally, you see this – you see it right around the world, but you see it particularly here, is you, this sense of, of leaders following rather than leading. Now, say what you like about Tony, say what you like about Thatcher, but the reason we put people in positions of leadership is to lead. Do you feel that this period that we're in of kind of populist rage, of relatively weak uh, centrists on, on, on you know, the right and the left side, yeah. um, do you see that as, as the new normal for some years to come? Or considering the costs that it's obviously exacting so far on, mm. on Britain and America, that it's kind of 
a spasm. I wonder how long this this is going to go on. It's going to be a rearrangement for. I really don't know. Okay. Uh, I, I, you talk about GQ. I did, I did an interview with Al Gore last year, and um, so we talk about climate change inevitably because it's his big thing. And I was saying, like, you know, you must just be. What are you going to do? You got this guy Trump president now. What the hell are you going to do? And he basically said, "I'm. We're just going to have to ignore him, work round him." Yeah, yeah. And it's like, well, yeah, but he's the president. Yeah, no, he's the president. He's got a lot of power. Yeah, no, he's got a lot of power. Now, <laughs> but and when you th- when and what he's been doing since then, he has been kind of working with cities, working with states, working with governors, going to different countries. So, I don't know if it's a spasm. I. I have a bigger worry. Uh, I'm, if I show you, this is, I'm slightly worried because this is a big worry. So if yours is bigger, yeah. well, he's getting well, it out of his I'll, bag. I'll, t- I'll, I'll tell you what I'm getting in my bag. I'm reading this book at the moment. I mean, this is, is great you, radio right now. Is it? Is it? <laughs> so, yeah. How bleak is this book? It's called The Holocaust. Pretty bleak. Pretty, Pretty bleak. bleak. Okay. By Lawrence Reese. And I'm, I'm, and I'm reading it. And, you know, I, I don't know why I picked this up to read it. Probably because I was, I was so depressed. It was like, I don't know. That'll cheer I, me up. Yeah. I, I don't know. Anyway, I just, <laughs> they I, didn't have the girl on the train. So. I looked at the. I'm sorry, I'm going to read that. And, and, and I, I've got to be honest, I can't put it down because, I mean, there's not that the big story, I know. But I'll tell you what is extraordinary. I'm, so I'm reading this section at the moment. Uh, so I do a lot of campaign on mental health, right? Hmm. I'm reading this bit at the moment. This is long before the Holocaust, right? Where. Hitler, who hated mentally ill people and hated the disabled, and he's co-opting doctors. This is kind of mm. before the war. He's co-opting doctors to kind of basically to kill them, okay? And I've got to the bit at the moment where they're trying out these valves because actually doctors found it easier if they could just turn a valve and have this gas come in mm. And take people out oh, right, right, rather than right. have, have to inject to, them. Yeah, mm. of course. Yeah, yeah. And that was like mm. you know. So you've got you've got these Nazis who mm. are sort of now. I had a when I did Tony for GQ, we had this argument because I was sort of saying, look, do you not feel if you look at things in the historic sweep that there's just too much of a feel of the 30s about, yeah. particularly yeah. with Trump yeah, in the yeah, states. Yeah. And he was saying, oh, don't be so ridiculous. You know, you can't compare him to Hitler and da-da. and I said, well, hold on a minute. Hitler didn't go for the judges and the journalists for quite a long time. Uh, Trump was doing it in week one. And and so I sort of think that this right-wing populism, and I'm not sure the left-wing populism is much better in terms of its kind of, you know, intellectual rigour. Uh, I worry it's not a spasm. I worry that, you know, if you think about it, I'm 60, so you, if you think that, my generation, pretty blessed in terms of, the, as Brits, as the life that we've led in terms of, you know, you're looking really worried about that. You're looking really worried. <laughs> uh, but, but the, you know, so we've, you know, I've, my, we haven't had national service. We haven't had to, you know, we've had, we've been involved in wars, but, you know, we've not all had to hmm. go to war. Uh, we've been pretty lucky on the kind of environmental catastrophe front. So I just I just worry that we we're entering a really, really dark and dangerous period of history. And one of the things that's extraordinary when you read the, the Hitler story is how much other countries, including ours, were kind of mm. willing, wanting to say, oh, it's not going to be as bad as we think. Oh, we can manage him now. You know, most famously, mm. changing his piece of paper. There's lots before that. 
It's funny, though, because a lot of people do say, oh, this is not as, you know, don't get hysterical. I remember lots of people saying that about Trump, and it's not as bad as you think. But it's like, like sometimes, I'm not saying it will be, but sometimes it is. Sometimes also, it, it really is as bad as you think. No, but also the normalization of this stuff. So, like, you know, how has it become normalized that, for example, we now know on the government's own assessment that there is no model they have looked at and there is no deal available that is not going to make us poorer, right? We know that now. And yet, have you heard people in pubs talking about that? Do you think people really are caring about that? Or are they not just saying, oh, get on with it? And I think this normalisation of stuff that is bad is kind of... I don't know. I think it, it's. I think it's dangerous. I think that that part is very. It's very common in British psyche as well. It's just like. Well, I mean, it, it's a very popular poster and tea towel. Keep calm and carry on. But it's mm. like it's. It's going to be okay. We've been in worse situations before, and I, I feel like that that kind of blind, unthinking sort of optimism among mm. just many ordinary voters is one of the big problems that we have in terms of shifting public opinion. I'll tell you what's just like, oh, you know. I'll tell you what's like, oh, you know, interesting about this public opinion. I don't know if, you've, if this is borne out by what, the stuff that you've seen, but I mean, you look at a lot of the polling at the moment, and it's actually quite depressing, in, Very in, depressing. in that people aren't necessarily changing their mind. But I'll tell you one thing that I think is really interesting. And there's a reason why you, there are not, things called non voters, is they're people who don't vote. But what's really interesting about the analysis of non voters on the referendum? Now, you might think non voters, well, that means, you know, maybe poorer people, it might be people who don't engage in current affairs that much and what have you. In which case there'd be, you'd think if they were asked, had you voted or if you were voting now, what would you vote? You'd think they'd be towards the kind of leave. And actually they're three to one if they had a vote now. This is why we've got to keep fighting for a vote on the deal. There's three to one actually that they would vote to remain. Now I think what's happening there is that whether it's us on our side or passionate leavers on their side, nobody wants to admit that they might have got it wrong. And that's what's keeping it close. But those people who didn't vote, yeah. who are kind of almost entering the debate for the first time, it's interesting they're coming out with a very, very different answer. That they're also works grabs. demographically, though, doesn't it? Because they're, they're probably people who weren't old enough to vote. Some of them, some of them for sure. And uh, you picked some... Ian up earlier about not talking about a second referendum. I'm going to pick you up on saying we mustn't talk about a vote on the deal. We must talk about a vote on the terms of Brexit because the framing of the word deal makes people think yeah, there okay. is a better deal Fair to point. be done. It's just that Theresa May isn't very good at negotiating a deal, so let's let somebody Consid- else try and do it. Consider it slack. <laughs> Look at these two campaigners over there. It's <laughs> very depressing. What about the words? Ian has never thought about his words. <laughs> I think about my fucking words all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and that's pretty much the end of the show thanks to our special guest Alastair Campbell what are you up to next uh, do you mean to, I'm actually going off tonight to do something for uh, to promote Bradford uh, <laughs> Bradford's kind of reaching out and trying to develop a new uh, a new profile in the world great that's make sure they all there. go to the Leeds March on Saturday oh that's a good point yeah. uh, and then what else am I doing I'm, I'm finding work, life very difficult for lots of reasons one of the reasons I find life difficult is because here we are in the middle of the football season and Burnley are going three weeks without Oy. a game 
I'm finding that quite yeah. hard. And me and Dorian are doing our best impression of giving a shit about what you just said. Do you well, not care about football? <laughs> <laughs> Do you no, really no, not care about football? I thought our faces projected a lot of emotional anguish over that fact. No, you don't. You don't care <laughs> no, I don't. It's not that I don't. <laughs> you don't care. I just don't, don't know. Don't pretend. I'm I don't mind. I'd rather the people like you said they don't care than people that come on to can't stand are people who pretend. Well, you'll get on very well with us then. Good. You really don't care. Don't give a shit. No, so I'm just carrying on my life. I'm off to write another new European piece and, you know, keep my keep my morale up good stuff well yeah maybe you're not reading the right book for the morale maybe <laughs> I am no, maybe I am maybe I am it's like, yeah. no I think I think it's really important things I mean, can only very, get worse it's a very, listen it's not that long ago no it's not that it's long not. ago listen I'm reading The Origins of Totalitarianism so I can't really yeah <laughs> who am I to judge <laughs> and thanks to Naomi and Ian as ever every week we finish the show with a snippet of a European language if you're fluent in one then we could use your voice to sign off just record a sound clip of something short encouraging and non-libelous in a quiet room and email it to us at info at romaniacs.com with an English translation please I can do that in two languages hey, oh, hello. do some for us do you want to quickly do one for us what do you want me to say Oof. alors le Brexit c'est un catastrophe pour mon pays et pour le vôtre I don't know why you talking in French is so funny, but it, but it is. Well, in the meantime, <laughs> here's listener Maria Brooks with a bit of German. Eure deutsche Königin könnt ihr behalten, alles andere bekommen wir. And now, hands in the air as we play out with Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and raise a Churchillian pint glass of champagne to our Patreon backers. Thanks from me to Joanna Pryor, Neil Champion, Gavin Clark, Rob Hammond and the mysterious APK. And it's The Soft Border by Chi. From me to Maria Pritchard, <laughs> Liam Collins, Darren Lethley, Owen Coburn and Ahmed Ibrahim. And finally, thanks from me to Alistair Jarrett, Richard Lloyd, Adam Cole, Liam Dutton and Richard Leeming. Brexit willing, we'll see you next week. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Naomi Smith and Ian Dunt. Studio production is by Sophie Black and the producer was me, Andrew Harrison. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.